Timothy Keller, he said, One way to put the gospel in a nutshell is this. You're more wicked than you ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. I think he captures it well, the message that we have received again and again as we have made our way through this letter to the Romans. We're completing our study of the letter of Romans today, and we noted at the start of our study of Romans, way back a number of weeks back in Romans 1, 16, and 17, that those verses are the key verses of the letter, summarizing the big idea, the central truth that changes lives and makes the message of the gospel, the Christian message, uniquely powerful and important. Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will, be, will live by faith. Well, we have come now to the closing of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He wraps up his letter today, making some final remarks, giving his final encouragements to the church, sharing his plans to visit them soon, and extending some personal greetings to those in the church at Rome who he knows personally. So flip over to Romans chapter 15, and we're picking up in verse 14 today. Romans 15 verse 14 is where we're starting today. He writes, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another, Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul begins his closing remarks by reassuring the believers in the church at Rome that he has not written them this long letter because he considers them remedial Christians requiring some detailed instruction that other believers don't. In fact, it's quite the contrary, quite the opposite is true. He tells them he's convinced about their good character and their spiritual maturity, that they are competent to instruct each other. Instead, he's written to remind them of important truths. Now, you might remember, this is also something that Peter had written to the people in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1.12. Peter wrote this, he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Remembering and clinging to the essential foundation truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is important 
for us as Christians. The human tendency is to be continually looking for something new, some new twist, some new addition, some new expansion, some new understanding, some new bobble. We do this in lots of areas. And for some areas, this can be a good thing. I mean, the human drive for new knowledge is responsible for advancements in the areas of science and technology. In the area of our Christian faith, though, we want to make sure we never let go of the essential foundation truths of the gospel, that we are continually being reminded of these things. We don't need something new. We need to not forget what is true already and not allow that which is true to be corrupted. We certainly want to continue to grow in our understanding and appreciation of the gospel. But adding new things to the gospel is to be avoided. Forgetting the foundational truths of the gospel is to be avoided. And so Paul has written quite boldly, he says, some points to remind them and us things never to be forgotten or changed. Paul has also written them because it's his responsibility, he says, as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. It's his job given to him by God to do this. Remember, the majority of people in the church at Rome are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So verse 17, he continues, he says, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Paul is careful to give all of the credit to Jesus Christ for what has been done and accomplished through him. Paul is a rare person in a world full of braggers and glory hounds. 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. The extent of Paul's evangelistic ministry has run from Jerusalem north and then west around the Mediterranean through what we know as modern-day Syria, Turkey, Bulgaria, Greece, North Macedonia, and Albania, areas which was known as Illyricum in Paul's day. Paul has always sought to expand the reach of the gospel to people who have not heard about Jesus before. This is the call in his life. This is where his heart has always been. And the reason, he says, why he's not been able to go to Rome up to this point. Rome, see, is a place where the gospel had already spread and taken root. As a result, Paul always found himself being directed to other places where people had not yet heard about Jesus. Paul's remarks here reveal the tremendous 
focus that he had in carrying out the mission that God had called him to. His job was to spread the gospel to people who had not heard about Jesus before, and that's what he continually determined to do. Now, that's not everybody's ministry, but it was Paul's, and I, I want us to see that he was so focused and dedicated to it. May the Lord give all of us that same kind of focus and determination to carry out the call and the ministry that the Lord has placed upon our life. Well, 23 says, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So although Paul has not had the occasion to visit the church in Rome before, he's now planning to visit them on his way to Spain, where he intends to begin a new missionary effort of telling people about Jesus and establishing churches. Paul is actually hoping the church in Rome will be able to provide him some assistance and support for his missionary journey into Spain. Now, a side question that uh, people wonder about is, did Paul ever get to Spain? We don't know for sure, but the evidence suggests that he did indeed get into that area of the world. The Bible does not itself include any information about that. But early church documents suggest that he did end up fulfilling his intention to take the good news about Jesus Christ into the areas of France and Spain. It's believed that following Paul's first Roman imprisonment, which was in the years of 60 to 62, he then traveled west into Spain. He then returned to Rome in 64 and was imprisoned a second time in Rome and eventually killed and martyred for his faith under Nero's vicious persecution of the Christians. Well, before Paul is able to make his first visit to Rome, which we're reading about here, he has to take care of some other business, which he talks about in the next verses. In verse 25, he says here, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ." Macedonia and Achaia are northern and southern Greece. And the churches in those areas have collected money together to help the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem, it says. And Paul is personally going to deliver this money to the church in Jerusalem. The people in the church in Jerusalem at this time were experiencing tremendous amount of difficulty financially. So Paul had encouraged the Gentile churches in Greece to send a gift of financial assistance to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. 
Now, besides this being a huge help to the poor in the Jerusalem church, it is also an important message about the unity of the church across racial and cultural divides. The Gentile Christians are helping to support the Jewish Christians here. The believers are putting their oneness in Christ above whatever racial and cultural differences that usually exist between these two people groups. This is to be always true of Christians. Our unity in Christ is to eclipse all human divisions. We are always first Jesus' people before we are anything else. Paul also says here that, in a sense, the Gentile Christians owe this financial support to their Jewish brothers and sisters since they have received the blessing of salvation through the Jewish people. Verse 30, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul asked them to join him in his struggle, he says, by praying for him. The struggle that Paul is referring to has to do with this trip to Jerusalem that he is about to embark on. He asked them to pray for his safety and that the gift will be favorably received by the believers in Jerusalem, that they will receive it in the spirit with in which it is given to them. You know, we aren't always able to join our brothers and sisters in their struggles in hands-on ways because of various limitations. I mean, we may not have the skills needed to help someone. We may not have the financial resources to help someone. We may not be close enough geographically to help them. But there is always one way we can help our brothers and sisters in their struggles. And that's through prayer. We can always pray for one another. Prayer is not a substitute for practical hands-on help when we're able to give it. 1 John 3.17, for example, says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. But by praying for one another, we can participate in one another's lives and help carry the burdens that we each have. And this is what Paul is asking them to do. He's asking them to pray for him. And they are joining with him in his struggle by doing that. Well, in this final chapter... Romans 16, Paul makes mention of a number of people by name who he acknowledges for various reasons and gives greetings to them. We don't know all of these people. We know something about some of these people, and we'll make mention of some of them as we go through this list. Also, the things that Paul says to various people in this list, it gives us some insight into the life and the functioning of the church in the first century. 
This final chapter, it reminds us, too, that Paul was a real person writing to real people in a real church going through real stuff. So this is history. This is not some, you know, fictitious story. This stuff really happened. These are real people. Now, there are several ways of pronouncing most of these names and places that we are going to be reading about here. Depending on where you are from and what root language you're working from and so forth, you may have a different pronunciation. You may have heard of a different pronunciation. And I want to point this out because, you know, some of you, uh, you know, A-types get a little carried away with, you know, like, hey, I heard that pronounced the other way. That is like, easy. Just settle down. In truth, it's unlikely that any of us are correctly pronouncing these names from 2,000 years ago. That's just the reality of it. So just do your best, and I'll do my best. We know who we're talking about, so just chill. Enjoy the ride, you know? Because sometimes people get way too carried away with us. Like, hey, you know, lighten up. Easy turbo, you know, it's kind of what you want to like. Back off on the throttle there just a little. So verse 1 of 16 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe or Phoebe, depending on how you want to say it, or Phoebe is how the Greeks would have pronounced it. And again, it's like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We all know who we're talking about. So, Phoebe, or Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So this first person that Paul mentions is the person who most likely is the one who carried this letter of Romans to the church in Rome from Paul. So Phoebe or Phoebe or Phoebe or, you know, maybe you got, you know, a fourth one I'm not even familiar with. So like, go for it. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. But based on what's written here, it appears that she is a business person of some kind who has used her means and her time to support the church and a number of people in ministry, including Paul. She's called a deacon or a deaconess of the church in Centria, which is a seaport village near Corinth. And you'll remember Paul was in Corinth when he was writing this letter. The Greek word translated into English as deacon here can also be translated generally as servant. However, based on the context, most scholars agree that it should be translated as deacon or deaconess. She serves as a leader in the church. Paul commends her to the people in the church at Rome and asks them to give her any help that she may need. It appears that she has come to the capital city of Rome for some kind of business in addition to bringing this letter to them. 
Now, people who are critical of the Bible's and the church's view of women, they ought to take note of this woman, Phoebe or Phoebe. She's a business person who holds some kind of leadership position in her local church. She is highly involved in the ministry of the church. She's entrusted with carrying this very important letter to the church in Rome. And if she has a husband, he's never mentioned. She's obviously highly respected by the Apostle Paul. Now, considering the culture of the first century, that all sounds pretty striking, doesn't it? Now, Paul sends greetings to 26 different people in the next 14 verses. It's a diverse group. There are both Jews and Gentiles mentioned. There are people from both high and low social classes. There are people of influence and there are nobodies. There are both men and women. There are people of different races and cultures. And I think this is important for us to note. This is what the church is supposed to look like. It's to be a multicultural fellowship of folk, not a bunch of subclasses, right? We are all one in Christ. So in verse 3, it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So Priscilla and Aquila, they are close friends of Paul, and they've been deeply involved in ministry with him and others in several places over the years. Paul first met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth on his missionary journey, and he stayed with them and worked with them there because they all three were tent makers by trade and profession. They also traveled with Paul when he went to Ephesus. They're now in Rome. And one of the church fellowships or house churches in Rome meets at their house. Second part of verse 5, it says, Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. You know how uh, small businesses uh, like local restaurants and such will save the first dollar that they make and they'll frame it and they'll hang it up on the wall to commemorate their first customer and their first sale. You know what I'm talking about? Well, Eponidas, he's kind of like that for Paul. He's kind of like his first dollar. Because he's the first person who came to faith in Jesus on Paul's missionary journey through Asia Minor. Interesting. And he's now in Rome. A dear friend, and he greets him. He says, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. There are lots of Marys in the Bible. This is another one. And Paul says, this woman, Mary, worked very hard for you, meaning the church at Rome. Now, we're not told what it is that she did for them. Maybe she's the person who handled all of the logistics, the organizing and the planning and the groundwork and the reservations and all of that to ensure that this letter has gotten to them. 
Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia can be either a man's or a woman's name. It's commonly thought that Andronicus and Junia are a husband and wife. These two have been faithful followers of Jesus, involved in ministry for a very long time. They became Christians before Paul did. They spent time in prison with Paul somewhere, presumably for preaching about Jesus. And he refers to them as apostles. Now, they're called apostles with a capital or with a little a rather than with a capital A, which was a special designation restricted to that handful of men tasked with establishing and leading the early church. The reference here should be understood in the wider sense of the word with a little a as among those who served as missionaries and evangelists. Verse 8. Greet Amphlee. I don't even remember how to say this one. Sometimes I get tongue-tied with these things. Ampelitus, Ampelitus, I think is, you know, close enough. My dear friend in the Lord. Now, Ampelitus apparently was a common name in those days for a slave. It's likely that Ampelitus is or once was a slave. Paul calls him a dear friend in the Lord. Now, hold that thought for a minute. It says, greet Urbanus our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity in Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. We know of a grandson of Herod the Great named Aristobulus. If this is the same person that Paul is referring to here, and it may be, it would mean that Paul had some friends among those in Rome in the household of a very uh, prominent family in the capital city of Rome. This may also be true with the household of Narcissus, if the references to Tiberius Narcissus, who was a man of proverbial wealth and power during the time of Emperor Claudius. So these folks, taken together with um, uh, Amphilitus, likely a slave, we have a wide cross-section of society that Paul has as friends here from slaves to high society, which is interesting. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. We have three women mentioned here by name who are commended for their hard work 
in the Lord. <clears throat> 13. Greet Rufus. <clears throat> Greet Rufus. <clears throat> Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, this may be the same Rufus who was one of the two sons of Simon from Cyrene, who you might remember is the man who was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Rufus' mother is counted dear to Paul as a mother to him. Now, we don't know this for sure, but if Simon of Cyrene was a native of Libya, which is where Cyrene is, then he was most likely black, which means Rufus would also have been black, and his mother was most likely black. And here Paul says she has been a mother to him. So if all of that is true, and it might very well be, then we have a beautiful picture of the inclusiveness that existed in the early church. Verse 14 says, Greet Asocritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. That's a lot of scary names to try to say, isn't it? It says, Greet Philologus, Julia, Neresus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Verse 14 is probably naming a group of folk who are all part of a church fellowship or house church, which gathered together in Rome. And then verse 15 may be the names of a family with Philologus and Julia being mom and dad, uh, with the others mentioned being their children. And then there's a reference to the church fellowship or house church, which met in their home as well. So we get an idea here of the functioning of the church in Rome, the, the makeup of the folk of this church, and the way that it functioned, don't we? It's interesting. Now, verse 16, he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. He says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a, a common practice at that time in that part of the world. This is not to be taken as Paul advocating that this be done universally in all churches everywhere. There are some cultures in our day that practice greeting one another with a kiss, too. While there are other cultures who use a handshake, some people hug. During COVID, the standard greeting was the elbow bump and the fist bump by folks as they were trying to minimize their touching of one another. The idea here is to greet one another warmly as members of one family in Christ. Verse 17, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, 
For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Throughout the letter of Romans, we have been instructed to be gracious and merciful toward one another, to love one another. Now Paul tells us to have no tolerance for those who cause divisions in the church and mislead us with teachings that are contrary to what we are taught in the Scripture. We are to keep away from them. They're not serving Christ with their own selfish ends. They use smooth talk and flattery to deceive naive people, he says. See, we're not to be naive, but wise about what is good and right and innocent about what is evil, not participating in what is evil. You may remember Jesus, he said a similar thing to his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, when he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Similar idea about being wise, about what's good, and innocent about what is evil. Don't, don't participate in that, but don't be gullible and naive and let yourself get taken in by these slick folk. Twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we have here a promise of God's victory over Satan. And we're reminded of the source of our joy and peace and security, which is the grace of our Lord Jesus. And then in 21, it says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends, you his, sends, you, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, and my fellow, my fellow Jews... I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. So this here is Paul's posse, so to speak. These are the guys who are with him right now as he's writing this letter to the people in Rome. The one person I'll point out in particular is in verse 22. Tertius is the person who is actually writing the letter to the Romans as Paul dictates to him. It was common in those days to have scribes do your writing for you. They were kind of like human typewriters or word processors. 25, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for this letter.
to the Roman church. We thank you that you have preserved it all of these years, that you kept it from getting lost or misplaced, that, the, that your people have preserved it and protected it all of these years for us, even now in our own day, to benefit from it. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would continue your good work in our lives, continue to change us, make us more like your son Jesus. Lord, that, and we thank you that we are established in you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.